Welcome to Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues leading up to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Frenita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs here at University of Southern California Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Today, we're going to discuss two topics. First, we're going to address the new reports concerning Russia and its potential involvement in this year's presidential election. And second, we're going to discuss Mike Bloomberg's money, the effect it has on the race, and also the media environment that his money creates and that related dynamics create. Is that media dynamic fair or unfair to the other candidates in the race, including Elizabeth Warren and the other competitors? So those two topics are our agenda. Uh, Shall we get right to it? Let's get to it. So um, I'm concerned about these reports that have developed over the last uh, week or so about renewed uh, Russian involvement in this year's election uh, and what Russian meddling or interference might mean. And one thing that concerns me is I don't feel like I've got a good handle on exactly what the new developments are. Do you feel like you understand what the latest news is and how we should think about it? Well, I do think the the latest news signals that the Russians are um, helping to bolster Bernie Sanders' campaign. Um, that's the, the latest story out. And um, it raises interesting questions about uh, what what should happen now? Where should we go from here? I don't think, let me just say initially, I don't think that anyone should be surprised by this. Um, the um, People have been saying for years at this point that the Russians will probably seek to um, involve themselves in the 2020 election. So I don't think it's surprising, even though it should still be alarming. Um, so I think it raises important questions about, um, number one, our failure to um, pass legislation to effectively counter some of this. Uh, but also, too, we have to be concerned about the narrative of the race. Because Russian involvement, and if they are seeking to bolster one candidate over another, um, it, it does give the the sense that that candidate might be a, an unwitting um, tool of the Russians, or um, it could have the, the potential of under, undermining that person's campaign in light of what happened in 2016. Um, so, so I think that it's the news is very alarming, and we have. Um, we, we, we do need to be vigilant about the fact that the Russians are seeking to involve themselves in the 2020 election. But I don't think that we, we can be surprised about it because uh, we knew that this might happen. And we, we honestly did not take steps to try to counter it ahead of time. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, I'm glad I asked the question the way I did and, and how you answered it because um, I'm alarmed, but I may be alarmed by something different than what you are. I, I'm sort of alarmed by the reaction to the news as much as the news itself that I understand it. Um, and I'd like to explore that a little bit. First of all, one thing that worries me is a lack of transparency. Uh, I think the fact that I'm trying to follow what's going on and I don't really feel I know it very well concerns me because the, the key goal here, I think, is voter confidence in that their system is free and fair, like what our whole podcast is about. The voters need to trust that they're going to have a valid election. And if they don't know what's going on, if we don't know what's going on, that uh, confusion leads to, to mistrust. Where I'm headed with this is you're alarmed by the Russian interference. And I get that. And I want to hear more from you about that. But I at least want to 
put on the table the possibility that depending upon what that interference is, we might be overreacting to it. And and we may be too afraid of our in our ability to run an election. We may be too fearful that Russia could influence us and that we can't have democracy for America by ourselves. And I think if we get too nervous and too anxious, that may be a self-defeating um, prophecy. So, um, so how's that for a, a roadmap for how to, how to talk about this? No, that sounds wonderful to me in part because I have question what the the appropriate reaction is. So this 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 issue of whether or not we're overreacting is a very important one. Um, so as a matter of fact, let's start there. Um, because I do, you know, that that is a question that I've I've had and I, I welcome your thoughts about it. How do we figure out what the appropriate reaction is given that foreign interference in our elections is a, a relatively new uh, thing and in, in, relatively new in a sense that, you know, the American public is aware. Um, they, are, they know of the risks, but, you know, because it's historically there isn't many examples that we can point to to say, okay, this is how we should respond to foreign interference in American elections. Now, Americans have certainly interfered in the elections of other countries, right? But just in, now we're the victims, and I just don't know of any model that can guide us in thinking about what the appropriate reaction is. And so your point about um, it really depends on what the interference is, the nature of the interference is is well taken because um, it's really difficult for me in this instance to try to think through what an appropriate reaction would be in this circumstance. Yeah, so one thing that I think is new, certainly with 2016 and now the current environment, is new technology. So we now have terms like cyber attack and hacking. And that's definitely different from you know, the pre-internet era. Um, but it's not new that foreign gov- governments have wanted to have thought about American elections and potentially wanted to influence. I was um, lucky enough to have a chance to read a book over the summer about the 1940 election, which is, was a really great book. And uh, you know, that's an interesting election on the eve of World War II. And Hitler's Germany had an interest in whether or not it was going to be FDR getting a third term or it was, I think if I remember right, Wendell Wilkie was the Republican candidate. And, and Hitler kind of had a preference for Republicans because he knew that FDR was pro-Britain and, and anti-isolationism, whereas the Republican Party at the time was you know, more isolationist. So now there wasn't any internet, there wasn't any cyber attacks. And so that comes back to the question of why I want to know what it is that the Russians are up to this year. Because I do think to the extent to which Russia or any other foreign country tries to use cyber technology to hack the election, and I, uh, that's, that's a danger zone where the red light should be going on. And hacking the election might be hacking the voting equipment or the vote, the, the uh, technology on how we report returns, and, and that meddles with the vote itself. That would be really bad. Uh, then hacking a candidate's emails is also infiltrating the system in a very surreptitious, illegal way, kind of like the, the computer version of the Watergate break-in. And that's obviously illegal whether it's from Russia or anybody else. So if that's what Russia's up to again, to me that calls for a certain kind of response. But if what Russia is doing this year is, is something that they did last year, 
or last time, which is the disinformation. It's like running these shadowy websites that talk about issues like gun control or urban violence. Again, I don't like any of it, but if it's just uh, discourse on the internet, that's where I'm much less concerned than I am about a genuine cyber attack. I don't know. I'm still concerned. I think that the nature of our politics lends itself to a situation in which if even if the Russians are just so indifferent disinformation, um, because of the polarization, even within the Democratic Party, because, you know, Poland indicates that a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters uh, will not support. Uh, anyone other than Bernie Sanders, right? So if the the Russians can exploit that, then it could have significant effects uh, and it could undermine the election in important ways. And I know you don't like to think of, um, you know, misinformation on the internet as a, a type of uh, election interference in a, uh, in a sense that what it calls into legitimacy the question of the, uh, the, the, it calls into question the legitimacy of the outcome. But I do think because of um, where we are in terms of our politics, this type of disinformation could have an impact, uh, more of an impact than this year than in prior years. True, but but we're going to see disinformation in our campaigns, whether it's coming from Russia or coming from Americans or who knows where. Um, I mean, I don't like it, but... and. And maybe I'm naive or maybe I'm really clueless but about what's set out there on the Internet. But there's already this discussion about are some of Bernie's supporters saying ugly things about Joe Biden or other candidates? Or you know, are some of the messaging on the Internet kind of appropriate messaging or not? I think that's going to exist in a polarized world regardless of Russia, right? And but but I I don't think it affects the integrity of the outcome. I mean, I mean obviously we're still early in the process, but we've had some votes in you know, in Nevada now and in New Hampshire and Iowa and there may be some rough and tumble to the politics, but I don't doubt that the voters who cast ballots were casting them for the candidates that they wanted to. And there have been questions about, we'll talk about this later, about whether those votes were accurately counted in Iowa or even in Nevada. But assuming we can get an accurate count, then I accept the fact that Sanders voters vote for Sanders and and Buttigieg vote for, voters vote for Buttigieg, and, and that's just democracy. Um, I, and I, I can't... Just, I don't... Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Jump I, in. I Please know. jump in. I, you know, I just, we, we have to be vigilant about the fact that it matters how people are influenced, right? So it's one thing if we, on our own initiative, we as a polity decide that, so for example, Bernie Sanders supporters decide that they only want to support Bernie Sanders, and this is not a choice that's influenced by uh uh, third parties who are uh, self-interested in a particular outcome. Uh, now, that is a, a, a category that can impro- apply very broadly. It's, as you mentioned, it could be Russia. It could be people who live here domestically. Um, and I, I admit, legally, it's difficult to control that, right? Like, But to the extent that we are committed to a system of free and fair elections, it should be alarming to us if Russia can, uh, for example, 
pretend to be Bernie supporters in order to create dissension within the Democratic Party. And then you have other candidates commenting on the fact that Bernie Sanders supporters are attacking them. And it becomes a focal point and, um, within the, the, the of the debate within the party, such that it's taken away from uh, attention on more important policy issues. So at the end of the day, my, my point is that the misinformation sown by Russia could have the impact of altering the election outcome um, in a sense that it creates uh, hard feelings amongst uh, the supporters of different candidates such that they refuse to uh, unite behind the whoever the eventual nominee is in the general. And that could have the same impact as uh, uh, explicit voter suppression campaign. But it also has the added benefit of being really hard to prosecute, right? Like, there's no legal remedy for really what Russia is doing. Uh, there's nothing to prevent them other than, you know, us uh, imploring Facebook and Twitter and other private companies to, to try to regulate some of this. There's really nothing keeping them from exploiting it. They have every incentive to do that. And so I guess I am reluctant to assume that um, we should be less alarmed uh, because I do think that Overall, it could have some impact on the legitimacy of the election because it has the benefit of being very hard to detect. Um, now, I don't. So l let me also, you know, take a step back. I don't think that that means that we need to, um, you know, try to completely rethink everything about our system of elections in order to address this. Right. Like I, I recognize that. Uh, yes, this might be a problem, but it's a problem that's really difficult to address. And so we have to be moderate in our response to it. But I also don't want to minimize the potential that it can have. Uh, but I also, you know, so it's, it's, it's me trying to strike a balance between not being too alarmist, but also not trying to downplay what's going on. Right. But look, can I ask this question? Um, okay. It's kind of hypothetical. I'd ask my students, so it's a little unfair to put you on the spot. But uh, <laughs> suppose... Suppose there is a conservative right-wing group in America that's well-funded and that is stealthy, kind of dark money, mm -hmm. and it wants to wreak havoc within the Democratic Party. And so it goes online and creates a kind of pretend organization that pretends to be Bernie supporters and does the same bad thing that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But it's not Russia. It's it's and it it's it's homegrown mischief. I mean, it's the kind of thing that Roger Stone used to do pre-internet yes. in the Nixon campaign in '72. Um, that could have an effect on the inability of Democrats to pull together at the convention and 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 so dissatisfaction between the Bernie supporters and the other parts of the Democratic Party. Um, how much of a difference is it if that happens? in the hypothetical I describe versus, you know, Russian folks doing that? I do think it's different. So um, my prescription would probably be the same. So I do think that uh, social media should take a, a, lead, a leadership role in controlling some of the misinformation and deleting false accounts and things of that nature. Um, and they can do that without raising any First Amendment concerns. But when Russia does it, it does raise some foreign policy concerns, and it should affect our dealings with that country moving forward. Right. We should not continue to interact with a country who is willing to intervene in our electoral system as if they haven't tried to sabotage our elections. That just I mean, it, it just adds another dimension. But in terms of the prescription for how do we um, address it from an electoral perspective, I think the prescription is probably the same. Um, but 
I think it's also important to clearly identify the problem and not minimize it because that keeps the pressure on private actors to take a leadership role in some of this, right? If we, if we try to frame it as, oh, it's not that bad, you know, or it's not that different from when private domestic, I'm sorry, when domestic actors commit the same acts, I think that that minimizes it in a way that's dangerous. Um, so, you know, this is why I'm sort of pushing back against this notion that it's the same. It's really not the same, just from a, a election perspective and a foreign policy perspective. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you're pushing back. And I, I guess I agree with you. I w- you know, I wish our government uh, as a sort of national security matter mm-hmm. would push back against this and tell Russia it's not acceptable. And if you do this, you're going to pay consequences. You know, exactly yeah. what they are. But it, but if this is, if you guys are flooding our our campaign environment with um, these shadowy organizations, you're it's going to whether it's formal sanctions or it's some sort of pushback. But we're we consider it sort of an act of war. I I, I get that, and I and I like the I idea that we would have a robust response. And we should shore up our election system too. Right. So that's another part of it. Oh, sure. Because election that security. Yeah. Absolutely. Because that's 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 not just disinformation. That's, again, trying to hack the vote itself. But the disinformation invites greater attacks, though. There's nothing to stop Russia from, you know, just stopping at, you know, creating these false profiles that uh, pretend to be supporters of one candidate in, or, in order to sow dissension in, in, a, in any particular political party. Right. If they get away with this, this invites other involvement in the sense that. Uh, I think you, we have to be vigilant across the board. It's not just so I, maybe it's a shared partnership between private actors and the government, right? Private actors police and social media and then the government passing legislation that uh, increases the security of our elections. Like if, a you know, a power grid gro- goes down um, or if the AP is hacked or, you know, something serious like that happens, we have to be prepared for stuff like that. And we frankly, we're just not. Yeah, no, and I hope U.S. Cyber Command has made it clear that if Russia attacks our power grid, they're going to suffer something. Um, but I, but accepting that, I guess I still would like to put two points on the table. Okay. The, the first point, the first point is I think, for better or worse, I think we have to be realistic that the Trump administration is not going to be as robust and vigilant in anti-Russia interference as you and I would like them to be. Agreed. And, and and while it may be appropriate to make some noise about that, it, it's not going to be the same kind of response as, as we might want. But recognizing that, I think we have to also be careful that an inadequate response on Trump's uh, part doesn't necessarily automatically mean that we have a failed election, right? In other words, because – and to take the – two points separately, I mean, even if he doesn't do enough to protect voting technology in Detroit, Michigan, maybe Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson is, and that, and we, and even if Russia tries something, that Michigan is going to have an adequate infrastructure to cast and count votes effectively. It won't because Trump helped Michigan do it right, but Michigan might be able to do it enough. And we at least should be sophisticated to be able to Distinguish that that possibility and say, "All right, it wasn't a, it wasn't as good a response from Homeland Security and the White House, but it, but our system survived." That's point 
one. And then point number two with respect to disinformation, again, Trump's not going to push back on it, and we should be troubled by it. But a regrettable election environment, again, isn't necessarily the same thing as a failed one. And I don't think we should be so thinking that our system is so fragile that it can't handle a little bit of uh, non-ideal situation. So whether it's, again, domestic stuff or foreign stuff, we should have better public and private responses. But we're not going to have a perfect electoral environment, and it doesn't mean the whole thing's a failure. And, I, and I, to me, the freak out, if that's a proper terminology that occurred in this last week, suggests that we're too on edge about this, and we don't have enough confidence of being able to make it through, and I'm worried about that. So um, I think I agree with a lot of that. I don't think that the perfect should be the enemy of the good. Like I, By no means do I think that our election system needs to be perfect in order to avoid any claims of uh, failure. Um, but I do think that um, our government plays a huge role in making sure voters believe in a system, and they haven't really done that. So part of the, the, the reason that people uh, are freaking out <laughs> is because <laughs> the government hasn't done what it needs to do in order to adequately respond to what happened in 2016. Now, that does not necessarily mean that Russian interference in 2020 means that the election was a failure. Federalism works both ways, right? So um, although you have states that have um, imposed restrictions on the right to vote, there are states who are being proactive in trying to um, improve their systems and um, while also making voting easier for people. And so um, the, the, both the benefit and burden of a federalist system is that, you know, you have states who are aware of the problems and trying to be vigilant about it, but you also, because it is a federal system, the risk of some states being, you know, interfered with or hacked in 2020 are great, right? So it does work both ways, but none of that means that um, we should be comfortable with claiming that an election is a failed election just because there are potential flaws and potential security risks in deploying uh, our system. Um, But I do think that uh, to the extent that we have an obligation to make sure that our system is secure in order to to um, enable as many people as possible possible to cast legal ballots, then we have an obligation to do that. And we can have a conversation about that without uh, going as far as saying that that the system has failed. Um, so by no means am I saying that it needs to be perfect, but I do think we need to have an honest and realistic conversation about the fact that our government has failed to do what they need to do in order to shore up confidence in the system, which is a, a vital and important part of believing that the system is a system of free and fair elections. Yeah, no, that's, it, that you hit on something I think that is key point about federalism here. Um, and, and that is, and I, I like, it's, it's leading me to an analogy which hopefully is useful. If we look around our 50 states at how they do voter registration, to me, best practices is something like automatic voter registration or something that makes it easy for people to vote. Unfortunately, not all the states are there. But we don't think that we have a fail systems in the states that are laggards. It's not good. We should try to keep pushing them. But we recognize the complexity of the situation and hope to continue to improve it. I think our attitude about Russia and uh, disinformation and these sorts of new cyber risks should be similar. In other words, there may be best practices out there that that are the equivalent of automatic voter registration. We'd like the feds to adopt it and help help states harden their systems better um, and also avoid disinformation better. But 
But the fact that we haven't got the gold standard in place yet isn't a cause for despair, I guess is what I'm saying. And that, and that, and that we should be thinking about how Russia might be a blemish in the way that the lack of automatic voter registration is a blemish. But blemishes on our system are not the denial of democracy completely. And I, and I don't think we're quite mentally thinking about that, R Russia. We sort of feel like Russia's going to take our democracy away from us completely and that it's not going to be our democracy anymore because of Russia. And I think the right way to think about it is that Russia may be a blemish, but, but not a complete stealing of the election. I agree. I do. I think that you're right in the sense that Russia, um, we can in some ways view it as a blemish. Uh, but, but let me, before we move on to the next topic, let me make a quick pitch for alarm. <laughs> okay. Um, I think for far too long, we have limped from election to election, right? So, uh, but because we've been able to limp, uh, so let's use the election of 2000 as an example, right? Um, for the first three weeks after the presidential election, we didn't know who the president would be, right? That is a, a, a cause for alarm. But we got past it. There was a peaceful transition of power. And so we were able to limp to 2004, to 2008, and then all the way up to 2016 before we had another uh, semi-crisis in the sense that the popular vote winner did not win the, the Electoral College, right? And so some people in that context question the legitimacy of the election, although, of course, it comports with the system that we have. Uh, but I do think there's one benefit to alarm, right? Every time something alarming happens, people are paying attention. Right. And so I just I really wish that the alarm would carry over into a non-controversial context. Let's say the 2020 election goes off without a hitch. Right. Uh, we have a clear winner. We, we have a, I know. Right. <laughs> Let's speak it into existence. We have a clear winner. We have a clear loser. Um, there's a peaceful transition of power. I hope that in February 2021, we can carry our current alarm to next year and have a serious conversation about how to make our system of elections better. And so that is the, 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 the role that I want alarm to play, right? I want it to motivate conversation. I want it to motivate concern before we really do reach a, uh, uh, an election in which we can't limp to the finish line. Fair enough. Well, let's, I think you're right. Let's leave that there. I'm sure we'll come back to um, uh, this topic down the road. But uh, let's turn to our second topic of today. And, and Fernita, why don't you take the lead on that for us? Okay. So, Ned, I'm really interested to get your thoughts on how um, Michael Bloomberg's entry into the race has shaped the media coverage, in part because um, he hasn't been on the ballot in any of the primaries or caucuses so far, yet he has played an outsized role in uh, sort of voter perception of other candidates in the race. And he's actually polling well in, in some of the Super Tuesday states that are coming up. And so um, I think his spending raises an interesting question about voter choice um, and how he has, um, in some ways, redefined the Democratic primary. Yeah, it's a... I think it's a complicated question because his entry into the race is in the context of the existing primary system that we have, which I think is a very, very flawed system. Uh, and I hope in a future episode we come back and talk about more about primaries and and how to improve it. But so I, if I can unpack your question into two parts, you know, I am concerned about how much money Mike Bloomberg has and the potential influence of just that much money can have on a democratic process. And so the way I think about it is to try to divide the topic up by saying, well, what if, what if we had a really good primary system, like had the ranked choice voting that we talked about last time and we'll talk about again. And so 
we had a we had a great electoral process, and then you injected into that system all of this money. Would I be as troubled about it in that context as I am now? And I think no. I, I mean, not that I wouldn't be troubled at all. I am concerned when you have that much money. But you know, he was a former mayor, and you know, if we're going to let money play a role in politics. You know, Tom Steyer has money too, and and so I think Bloomberg's effect on the race is a combination of his money and his resume. It's not just the money, uh, but it is it is being injected into the system that is already a flawed system. So it exacerbates the problem. So what about you? What's what are your thoughts on? I this? do think it brings us back to a question we asked in the last segment about. Um, would it be different if the Russian influence was, uh, if the influence on voter choice was from Russia or if it was from domestic sources? I think Michael Bloomberg presents an opportunity to think through that hypothetical a little bit more, right? Because he he's running for president. He is freely spending his money, right? So if he wanted to, um, so for example, he posted a video after the um, debate in Nevada where he, um, it, it, I think it received four or five Pinocchios because what he did was he pieced together uh, reactions from the other candidates where it seemed like they were like he made this brilliant point and they stared at him in silence for 20 seconds and couldn't <laughs> couldn't have a comeback. Right. Um, I mean, that is a form of misinformation. Right. Because it gives voters the impression that he stunned everyone else in a debate where everyone universally thinks he lost. Right. So um, is that better than uh, Russia coming in and setting up a few fake book face fake Facebook uh, profiles? in which they uh, circulate the same video, right? So um, it, it, I think it does raise an interesting question about good and versus bad uh, influences on voter behavior and when should we be concerned? Um, because at the end of the day, you're right, the money is there. Tom Steyer is rich. Uh, Michael Bloomberg is certainly not the first um, uh, wealthy individual to run for president and to, and to throw their money around um, in a way that influences the, the, the election. Uh, but the question is, uh, when is it problematic, right? When have we crossed a threshold where voters are no longer making a choice that's, that's freely theirs? Um, and I think that's one reason why um, the amount of money in our political system is, is of some concern, right? Because um, at the end of the day, to the extent that we mean something by free and fair, um, the amount of money can influence voter choice in a way that voters are not exercising their right to vote in a way that we think as we think of as consistent with a democracy, right? Uh, the idea that sovereignty is with the people. So, I don't know. Um, like with Russia, this is something that is very difficult to police. Um, it, it's something that should cause us to rethink how we do primaries, though, um, because it's remarkable how someone who hasn't been on the ballot in any primaries in caucus states so far has fundamentally reshaped the race. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little nervous going all the way to the point that the money can sort of take away voter choice and, and, and make it so the elections aren't free, free or freer. I do think money has an influence. There's no doubt that both Steyer and Bloomberg are affecting the race by the amount of money that they're putting in. But they're only doing that because voters are to some extent willing to pay attention to the message that they, that they have. Now, it is true that you and me, we don't have those billions, and so <laughs> we can't affect the message <laughs> the way they can. Yeah. And to be clear, but, I didn't uh, mean to suggest that it's not free and fair because there's a lot of money. But to the extent that free and fair is our ideal, 
does the presence of all of that money make us question whether a, a, another system will better effectuate our goal of free and fair? If that makes sense. I just I feel like that distinction matters because it suggests that um, just because you have a rich guy in the race, all of a sudden the election is not free and fair. And that's not what I'm saying. Uh, yeah. He certainly won't be the last billionaire to run for president. Um, what I'm saying instead is that it, given the fact that we have people with unlimited resources in the race, and honestly, this is a conversation we should have had back in 2010 after Citizens United, right? But given the fact that we have someone in the race who has unlimited resources, is this the best way to do primaries? Is this the best way to do caucuses? How can we well, revisit this system? Yeah, no, I think you're asking the right question because to me, the issue is the concept of crowding out. I mean, if 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 Bloomberg and Steyer's money just bought them a little bit of publicity and then the voters ruthlessly sent them away packing, which they may do, but it, but it may feel too late because of the structure of the primary calendar and process, that, that would be different, right? So if, if, if Bloomberg, you know, makes a run at it with his billions and like the way Steyer did, but ultimately they get... Uh, they get eliminated, and it, the race comes down to you know, Sanders and Biden and Buttigieg and maybe Warren. But you take the billionaire money out of the race. Well, then maybe no harm, no foul. They had a chance, and if they had been um, the voters liked them, they would have kept going. the The real problem for me is a timing one, in that if if Tom Steyer and Bloomberg if in effect crowded out other competitors and tripped them up in a way that destabilized the race and interfered with genuine voter choice, that to me is a serious problem. But I don't I think that's a less a function of their money than it is of the blunt of the real structural deficiencies to the to the system itself. The fact that Super Tuesday comes so fast after these four for um early contests and there's no uh, time to catch your breath and kind of figure out where the, the the state of the race is. I think that that's a excellent point in part because we do have to be con some concerned somewhat about whether the primary system is mimicking some of the flaws of the general election. So let me explain what I mean by that. If we're concerned about candidates like Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg interfering in a way that trips up other candidates such that it distorts voter choice and we get a nominee uh, of a major party who may not be reflective of that electorate, um, the Electoral College already does that in the general election, right? So it's entirely possible, as we know, to have a, a president who is not um, um, the choice of a majority of voters. This is something we accept as a, uh, a as a really a feature of our system, right? Um, and so to me, it will be extremely problematic to mimic that in the context of primary elections, right? So it's one thing to say that as a condition of voting in um, in America and agreeing to be governed by the system that the Electoral College means that it's entirely possible we would get a president who uh, a majority of Americans do not support, and we agree to that as a part of you know being governed by the U.S. Constitution. Why should the primary system mimic that, right? And if, if the primary system is such that where this is possible, then we need to revisit it. Absolutely. Um, and in some sense, the primary system is even worse because it's the parties that are exactly. yes. controlling the primaries to some extent. And uh, why should we be governed as a country by what the Democratic Party wants or what the Republican Party wants? Those are uh, those. Right. I mean, they're, they don't speak for all of us. And so if the, if the parties are replicating these pathologies, which would allow 
Bloomberg's money or Trump's money or whatever to kind of control their internal party dynamics, that's not just bad for the parties. That's bad for America. It's bad for America. And let me just introduce one other dynamic in order to show that things are really different now. So uh, as I mentioned, Michael Bloomberg is not the first uh, billionaire to run for president, right? Do you remember Steve Forbes? <laughs> Steve yes, Forbes. I was... ran, yeah, I mean, he ran for president twice, right? Trying to get the Republican nomination and he lost both times. And he is like, he has more money than I can even imagine. And so it's not <laughs> being rich does not necessarily mean that you will be president or even that you, it, it does not even mean that you will win the nomination. But there is something that is distinctly different about these times. Right. Because in 2016, Donald Trump, um, he claimed that he was self-financing. But one thing that is true is that he didn't really have the help of a super PAC. Right. Um, and now we have not only do we have really rich people running, but they also have super PACs and they are also using their money in different ways. Right. So Michael Bloomberg, for example, is hiring people to send text me messages to family members on his behalf. Um, and I don't know if I've seen that before. And so it's just the it's not just the presence of money. The the use of the money is, is really different this time around in ways that I don't think the system is is ready for. Yeah, and I suppose we should just remind uh, our listeners who may know better than us, but uh, my, my memory of Steve's Forbes is the Forbes wealth came out of, again, pub the publishing industry, yes. right? Forbes magazine. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, there's a parallel to Bloomberg having his money come out of, uh, you know, the Bloomberg news. But, but you're right. We now have this whole internet technology, texting mm -hmm. technology. Um, is this a cultural point or an electoral point? In other words, is is the problem, again, how voters form their opinions of the candidates who run? Or is it a, which is what I would think of as cultural, or is it a, a problem of how the electoral process aggregates voter preferences and identifies winners? Or is that a fair distinction in this context? Ah. Uh. That is a tough, that is a what is the meaning of life question. <laughs> um, so I I think it's hard. So it, it, it may be a cultural moment in a sense of uh, we have to look at how technology has changed our culture and how we interact with each other and how we interact with our politicians and our expectations for our government. Uh, but I think your second question uh, resonates with me a little bit more uh, because if if we are thinking about this in terms of good versus bad influences on voter choice, right? The idea that, you know, some influence is inevitable. Uh, if you think about uh, elections from even the, you know, the 18th and 19th centuries, people were certainly influenced by the partisan press. Like this, the, the idea of voters exercising their vote free of influence is not really a thing that exists. Uh, but I think that we've reached a point where we have to ask ourselves, can our system accommodate um, um, or rather, is our system doing a good job of aggregating votes in a system in which there are both good and bad influence, influences on voter choice? And I think that is the question that we have to ask ourselves. And if not, what should we do about it, especially if it's really difficult to police bad influences? Right. No, I think that's right. I mean, and because I do think we can change rules to have better aggregation mechanisms, right? You mentioned the Electoral College. I think we could have the capacity to fix some of the technical um, rules that how states interact with the Electoral College, a, a topic I hope we come back to in a future episode. Um, likewise, we can fix primary rules 
and how the parties nominate candidates. Um, what I think is a lot harder is to fix how voters form their preferences given the media environment that they uh, exist in. And yeah, I mean, again, I'm trying to take my own personal political views and put them outside this conversation because I'm, I'm interested in a fair process for all Americans. Uh, but obviously, I'm troubled by how much polarization there is in America today. And I'm troubled that, uh, you know, about um, some of the vitriol in, in, in American political discourse and, 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 you know, some of the hatred that's expressed. So I, I, I do very much have concerns about the opinions that voters seem to have, or at least some voters have. Uh, and 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 so you know why is it that some voters form the preferences that they do? To me, that's an important cultural question. But I think it's beyond the capacity of the electoral process to to fix that. I mean, that's I don't disagree. Education. Yeah. yeah, we may be better off just you know trying to construct a system that can better address how voters form their preferences, as opposed to trying to fix how voters form their preferences. Right. I mean, I guess, I don't know. I mean, you know, obviously we're looking at like we're going into an environment this year where it seems like, at least for the presidential election, the choice is could be as, you know, polarized as ever before. Um, as a result, not just of the preferences, but of the of the aggregation mechanisms. That's what worries me. Um, because I think the the system that we use is unfortunately increases the effect of the polarization that's already there. It would be hard enough to deal with the the dissatisfaction and the sentiments. I mean, the dissatisfaction is real, and voters again in a democracy are entitled to their views. But my guess is that a better system would ameliorate some of those polarizing tendencies. Our system exacerbates them. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, and it's not new. You know, I think, you know, to the extent that we are looking at the current situation, it's unprecedented. It's unprecedented in some ways, right, just in terms of, you know, technology and the extent to which um, foreign countries have interfered. But um, it's also pretty much the same, right, just in the sense of our system is broken. <laughs> we haven't fixed it. Polarization tends to strain the capacity of our system to effectively um, hold elections. Uh, but, you know, for some reason, we always manage to get to the next one. Uh, but it's not without uh, a, a, an extreme cost, right? There, and, and we ignore that because we make it we make it to the next one, but we ignore that we paid a price in doing so. Like, for example, after 2000, yes, we made it to the next election. We, we had a 2004 election, but at what cost, right? The Supreme Court's legitimacy was called into question after Bush versus Gore uh, because some people felt like it was a very partisan decision. The country became more polarized after Bush versus Gore, right? So there's a, there's a cost to having a system that doesn't respond well to polarization. And oftentimes, ironically enough, the cost is increased polarization, right, such that we are in a, our current current era in which the polarization is really, really bad. And, you know, in many ways, we live in a, a post-truth society where people live in their enclaves and they can insulate themselves from news that is contrary to their worldview. Right. So, you know, for many years, we've been leading up to this. And part of it is because we limp from election to election and we don't fix the core fundamental uh, systematic problems that we have in our in, in our system of elections. Yes, but 
and we should wrap up this this conversation. But don't despair, Fernita. Please don't despair. I'm trying because, not to. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have to we have to watch. I mean, you put an important issue on the table, and as the process goes forward, we should you know watch the effect of the money, watch the interaction between money and the system that the voting rules that we have, and we should worry about polarization. So I don't want to ignore any of this. Yes. But but it, but you you also said we should be thinking about not just getting through this election, but the next election. And, Who do and we want to be? That's yeah. the question. And just to um, inform our listeners, something I think you already know is I'm working on a book on the progressive era, uh, you know, which was America 1900 and 1920. And the reason why that history is, is important to me is not just for history's sake, but to use it for the sake of the present and the future. Because the progressive era followed the Gilded Age. You know, Gilded Age was a period of, of incredible wealth inequality in a sense, again, that the robber barons controlled everything and the, the people weren't able to effectuate their will. And we had a lot, it wasn't a perfect era by any means and there was a lot of problems, especially on the issue of race. The progressive era was not progressive on race. But it did adopt direct election of U.S. senators. It got women's suffrage. It, it, it developed um, the first campaign finance laws. And so electoral change was possible. Mm-hmm. But if you looked at America 1880, 1890, you might have despaired. So we, what we need is a neo-progressive era following our neo-gilded age that we're living in. And we're not there yet. And the question is, is how do we get there? So um, so let's uh, let's keep that topic on the agenda both this year and into the future. Sounds good.